Ever snore so loud it registered as an earthquake or you woke up with a throat as dry as the Sahara Desert and a headache that could stop a locomotive? Well, I've had all of these because I have sleep apnea. Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. Yep, I wear a machine plugged into a wall attached to a hose every night. Sound Sleep Medical changed all of this for me, and they can do that for you. They specialize in providing oral appliance therapy for individuals suffering from sleep disorders. In many cases, oral appliances have proven to be as effective as CPAP machines in treating sleep apnea. The lack of sleep is a serious health risk and has been linked to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and even depression. The oral appliance I got from Sound Sleep Medical has freed me from a hose. I can go anywhere, and I've never slept better. Call Sound Sleep Medical today. Seriously, for a limited time, the first 25 people that call get a free consultation worth 200 bucks. Call 801-783-5451. It's 801-783-5451. Hello, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And this is Dinner Table Politics, and this is the post-4th of July edition. And I can't really hear how loud my voice is because my eardrums are blown out. From all the fireworks. Yes. Except for it was hailing on the 4th of July in our backyard, which is kind of bizarre. Only It lasted for only about five minutes, so I guess I shouldn't be all that impressed by that. Fun anecdote. Fun anecdote. Very cool. Weather. Awesome. Yes, well. Good start. Well, weather is what Donald Trump blamed his reference to 18th century airports on. He said that the... Oh, I didn't know that he made an excuse about it. I know that he said that in the Revolutionary War, we took all the airports. Yes. Which, of course, we did. We did. The British didn't have any airports. And so we, by definition, took all of them. So, you know, you've got that going on for Except you. then, by that same logic, the British also took all of them as well. Yes, that's true. So. Well, he said, our army manned the air, it ran the ramparts, it took over the airports, it did everything it had to do, and at Fort McHenry, under the rocket's red glare, it had nothing but victory. Wasn't that the War of 1812? Yes. Oh. So he's talking. Also, we lost that war. The War of 1812? Well, they burned down the White House and it, stuff. and uh, It was kind of a stalemate more than anything else. I wouldn't say It wasn't like a glorious win, though. No, it was not. And Fort McHenry wasn't a glorious win either. Uh, but it didn't matter. Donald Trump kind of got all that confused. But he blames all that on teleprompter problems. Although one of the biggest things he used to say when he was running for office was that he wasn't going to be as reliant on the teleprompter as Barack Obama was. That's he could, weird. He goes back on things he said when he was campaigning. Yes, he does. Crazy. He goes back on his word on a number of things. Yeah. And in other news, water is still wet and dogs still bite people sometimes. What? You know, that's the journalistic thing. When a dog bites a man, it's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. And the idea that Donald Trump doesn't tell the truth is sort of dog bites man. Oh, our dog never bites man. No, he doesn't. Our dog is a very nice dog who doesn't bite anybody. So If he did, it would be news. Yes, it would. All right, so we've got the good anecdotes out of the yeah. way. Yeah. Well, so Donald Trump's whole 4th of July celebration was remarkably controversial. Uh, in practice, other than the fact that he made a silly gaffe about airports... Most people gave the speech fairly good marks. They said it really wasn't particularly political. 
It was not what people were afraid of. There was what, this, what were people afraid of? They were afraid that it was going to be a political rally, that it was going to be make America great again, oh. and that he was going to be overtly political. And instead, he relied solely on the history of the country to try to stir up patriotism from people in both parties. Because there's nothing controversial about the history of our country. Right. Well, and see, that's the point I want to raise with you here, because it's really interesting to me as we look at patriotic celebrations to see how the rising generation reacts to them. Because the evidence suggests that they're not as enthralled by those kinds of stories as generations previous. Mm-hmm. Politico has an article where they talk about, the headline is, Are Americans Falling Out of Love with Their Landmarks? And it goes through the history of a bunch of American landmarks like Colonial Williamsburg, where your aunt and uncle, they live right by Colonial Williamsburg. I remember going there as a very little kid, right around the time of the Bicentennial. And it was the most exciting thing in the world to wander around this fake colonial village where people were wearing tri-corner hats. And I remember I had this fake musket. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Well, that that, that doesn't... Ex- I, well, I've been, and I remember just being like, this is weird. Like, Did you well, go to Colonial Williamsburg? Yeah, we we you've taken us before. Or no, we went to Jamestown. We went to Jamestown. We went to a few other places, but we didn't... I, I don't know. I kind of just thought, like, this is kind of a... Why? Why Why is this a thing? Well, and more and more people your age are saying the same thing. According to Politico, Colonial Williamsburg draws half, about half the number of visitors it attracted in the 1980s. I can see why it would be cool to go to, like, on, hol- like, the 4th of July and stuff and holidays like that. But it's open, like... I don't know. It, I don't know. It's open. It's open all year round. Yeah, and then and they, I, I they just cut don't staff. Know. People just aren't as interested in that kind of stuff anymore. And you you look at Gettysburg. Gettysburg had fewer people in 2018. The fewest number of people visiting on the Fourth of July since 1959. And people aren't going to Gettysburg anymore. People just aren't interested in any of these things. The national. I don't think that means that they're not interested. What does it mean? I don't know. I think it's a lot more accessible to... You can watch, like, documentaries of, like, reenactments of the Battle of Gettysburg and stuff, you know? like it's, So it's not as exciting to actually go to the physical place? Well, you go to the place and it's, like, it's a field, you know? Yeah. Like, and we know what it looks like. I don't know. Well, one of the coolest places to go, I think, that tells the history of the country is the National Air and Space Museum. I have memories as a very little kid, but even as an adult, going back to the to the National Air and Space Museum and seeing these capsules and seeing these ancient, ancient, these old flying machines. They weren't ancient because we didn't have airports. I don't know if you knew that. There were no airports way back in the day. But that, When you were a kid? When, there were airports when I was a kid, yes. Mm, I don't know. They were first being invented. <laughs> the Wright brothers were just starting to jump off cliffs and stuff. Well, so in 2018, the National Air and Space Museum um, hit a 10-year low in attendance. People aren't going to the National Air and Space Museum either. Why not? I mean, is that something? See, because for me, going and seeing those things on TV aren't nearly as exciting as actually going. Why are you Why are you asking me? Ask, like, the baby boomers and stuff that are retired and have time and money to do it. Well, the baby boomers that... Well, I don't know if it's a retirement. All the, all the millennials are working full-time jobs. They can't just go to these places all the time. 
Well, yeah, but when the boomers were working full-time jobs, they did go to these places. It's and we a- can get into that, how cost of living has risen, but wages haven't. And So you think this is an economic issue, this isn't a patriotic issue? I think it's probably a combination of both. I don't know. Well... It, it's interesting to me uh, now that I'm singing in the Tabernacle Choir, for instance, for the Fourth of July broadcast, we sang all these patriotic, chest-thumping songs. And yeah, I don't know why the church. We like we, I yeah, like the the national anthem and stuff is in is in the hymn book, right? But it's like we they weren't on really good terms with the United States for a long time there. No, that's true. I mean, in fact, we're coming up on Pioneer Day. Which isn't a thing outside of Utah. And we put up American flags on our lawns and stuff and set up fireworks. But it's like, they were trying to go to Mexico. They were trying to get out of the United States. They were getting out of the United States. The idea that this is a patriotic holiday is really kind of revisionist history. So it's pretty funny. It's always been funny to me because we have to put up those flags for the Boy Scouts. Yeah. And I thought we need to go out and buy a whole bunch of Mexican flags and put those up. Because we were going into Mexican territory. But then we essentially took over Mexican territory. So maybe there isn't a lot of good stuff there. That, Olé. Uh, <laughs> Olé. Well, the whole idea of patriotism, just as a concept, is something that I want to explore a little bit. Because there are many people who think that it's dangerous. That, that the, an appeal to patriotism can be an appeal to a national identity uh, that spurs people to do things that are terrible. At the risk of invoking Godwin's law. Uh, one of the things that people say led directly to World War II. Was nationalism? Well, was the humiliation of Germany after World oh, War Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we ground Germ- Germany's nose into the dirt and said they couldn't do anything. And Hitler appealed to the German identity and the sense of, you know, the sense of nationalism and patriotism uh, to create fascism. That that patriotism was an element of fascism. And there are a number of people, I don't agree necessarily, but there are a number of people that say any kind of nationalism has the potential of turning sour like that. Sure. Do you agree with that? Um, Yeah, I think it'd probably be harder with a country as big and diverse as America. I can, like, and it's, I don't know. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that. What... What's good patriotism and what's bad patriotism when we get back from our break? So you think the size of the country precludes us using nationalism to create There's just totalitarian too many state? people to kind of get a group think here. There's so many people right. who disagree on so many things. It's kind of hard to unite them. On, I don't know. That's an excellent, excellent point. Oh my gosh, thanks. No, I, I think it is. Because Joe Biden, for instance, has been going out and talking about how he's going to be the candidate that unites the country and how unity is essential. And the country has never been united in the way that you're describing. We had a civil war. That was, yeah. That wasn't so united. I don't I don't think, our, I don't know. It's I can see, like, Germany, for instance, is the size of what? Like, two states? Or it's just like, like Texas or something, you know, or smaller? And all those people, like, lived there their whole lives, had grew up in similar cultures, spoke the same language, you know? No, that's looked, a good point. Looked, looked the same for the most part. 
ethnically and, uh, yeah and came from like similar backgrounds in america that's not the case at all like people like people move around all the time like the country's huge you can like go live in a completely different culture in like maine and then move to like arkansas you know like it i don't know you don't think the Manians have a lot of. I, I should have. I should have. I should have. I should have said like California and then Arkansas. You know, <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know what Maine culture is. Lobsters. I don't, I don't know. Lighthouses. Are they called Manians? Are they called Arkansans? I think they're called maniacs. Maniacs. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's where maniac comes from. Yeah. So all crazy people come from Maine. Yeah. That's good. We've but established. That I don't. So it's kind of harder to. So I can see why, like a, a country like Germany could have, that could have happened to, but I don't see that ever happening. With America. Well, that was one of the things that your grandfather, my father, former Senator Bob Bennett, used to talk about an awful lot when he would talk maniacs? about... Not maniacs. Uh, I don't know that he's ever said anything about the state of Maine that I can recall. But he used to talk an awful lot about the fact that the United States of America is the only country in the world that was founded on the basis of an idea rather than an identity, rather than an ethnicity. I mean, the things you're talking about, countries tend to coalesce around people who are, you know, racially similar, yeah. who are geographically proximate to each other, yeah, and all of that kind of thing. And the United States really didn't do that at all. What about Canada? Canada kind of. Well, I don't know. There's a bunch of French people there and a bunch of like. Well, Canada, you, you, you see in Canada big splits based on ethnic identity, particularly yeah, in, in the French speaking in Quebec. But you look at the United States of America and the history of this country is what used to be called the Great American Melting Pot. Great American yeah. Melting Pot. And then it shows everyone jumping into a melting pot. And when I was little, that's in Schoolhouse Rock. Yes. And I was like, are they all going to get eaten? I thought, are they so, all going to get cooked? Yeah. Are they all going to get boiled? Yeah. Like fondue or something? Like do you dip stuff in the Great American Melting Pot? Well, the idea was that all of these cultures come together and sort of melt together. And it tastes and create, disgusting. And it tastes disgusting. But it creates a unique American identity that With is shared. With just a touch of slavery. <laughs> right. right. Actually, I've gone back and watched that video. And there are no, apparently there were no black people in the Great American Melting Pot, according to Schoolhouse Rock. None mm, of those. They were even segregated from that. They were even segregated from that. That was Come so on, Schoolhouse Rock. Early 1970s, mid-1970s. But that whole concept of the melting pot is not one that we hear anymore. And what you're seeing, I think, in the United States is a division that's not just based on political differences, but we're starting to see a kind of balkanization to some degree. What? Well, the Balkans uh, are, are an area, you know, we, we bombed the Balkans back during the Clinton administration. And balkanization is the idea that different ethnic groups take over different territories. Okay. Uh, we're not seeing it territorially so much in the United States, but you're seeing that national identity is not as strong in many instances as other kinds of identities. For instance, if you were to say, okay, Abby, what are you? How would you describe yourself? What, what's the first adjective you would use to describe yourself? Female. Okay, so your, your gender identity is probably the top of mind, the most important identity to you. Uh, I wouldn't, I guess. It's kind of weird to say out loud. Well. Like, yeah, that, like, that makes, that, most of my decisions and stuff are 
influenced by me being a girl. Well, if you listed all of the things that you are, all of your identities, at what point would American show up on the list? Oh, I didn't even think to add that. <laughs> I don't, maybe like fifth. Right. Well, I mean, I would probably say, you know, I am a husband. I am a father. I am a Latter-day Saint. I am all of these things. And then American comes up at some point. But it's, it's, it's lower down on the identity list. It's not as important as it used to be, I don't think. I think it would have been higher if you'd asked the generation ago. I think there was more, not just, and I'm not putting this in a sense of that this is a good or a bad thing. I think we are evolving as a world to a post-nation-state society. Ooh, I, I okay. Mean, does that make any sense? Uh, a little, I, can, I a little bit. I can kind of see that with like the idea of like the internet and globalization, right? Like, uh, country boundaries don't really matter as much anymore. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, in in the days of the revolution, you know, uh, King George, Fort Henry, King George <laughs> went to Fort Henry. King George went to Fort Henry took and a, met Francis Scott Took, an, Air, took an airplane there, right? Was King George still alive in the War of 1812? I don't think he was. I don't think so. I think he had died by then. But I, I look at that and I say, okay, King George trying to communicate with the troops, he would have to send a letter on a ship and it would take weeks to arrive. And so all of these troops and things are operating without the kind of direct communication that we have today between anybody. I can I can pick up my computer and I can have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the world in real time, uh, and we don't think anything of that. But you look at the the purpose for why the nation state evolved as an idea, and it was done to facilitate communication, it was done to to facilitate trade, it was done to establish common currencies. It was done to do all kinds of things that we no longer need a nation state to do. We have Bitcoin. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I, I haven't invested in cryptocurrencies, but I'm working with somebody who has spent an awful lot of time in cryptocurrencies, and we've gone to a number of conferences on this. And the idea of cryptocurrencies is the idea of decentralization. And it's it's kind of hard to explain. Whenever I try to explain Bitcoin to anybody, I'm, I'm kind of my eyes are kind of glazing over right now already. And, and your eyes are glazing over. But the 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 powerful idea at the center of it, and I don't want to explain how it works. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, but but why it works is that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can hold value as a currency without any kind of centralized structure managing them. They are decentralized. There is nobody in charge of Bitcoin. There is nobody in charge of Ethereum. I bet there's some guy in a basement somewhere who is. Oh, who's in charge? Who could press a button and it all just disappears. Well, see, that's the glory of the blockchain. And now I have to explain why it happened. So I won't. Okay. Never mind. I shouldn't have said anything. But the, the, the fact of the matter is we have established a currency independent of a nation state that is stable, relatively stable, that can hold value. And that is immune to fraud. You cannot defraud Bitcoin. Is that a dare? Uh, yeah, it kind of is a dare. So what does that mean for the future of the nation state? We will talk about that when we get back from our break. So we can do that with currency. 
we can also do that with trade. I look at President Trump's tariffs and how ridiculous they are because they are a 17th century approach to 21st century problems. That doesn't work for anything. No, it doesn't. And the reality is that... Except for maybe people in colonial Williamsburg problems with for them really maybe some like mending their clothes and stuff and yeah that's a churning problem. butter yeah the butter churning a lot of butter churning 17th and 18th century solutions to trade don't necessarily apply in the 21st century and the reality is you have the ability to get on a computer and trade with somebody on the other side of the world in real time immediately and the I start. I've I've done that before. I started playing Webkins at a really young age. Yeah. So I understand and the whole concept of trade. So, uh, were you trading with people in China? Yeah. Because because they they would come into like the clubhouses and stuff, and their names would be in like Chinese characters and stuff. Oh, very fun. This was the dumbest story. Why did I bring up Webkins? <laughs> Webkins is good. No, but that's the reality. The reality is that... Anyways, Trump should have played Webkins when he was younger. Is that the moral have been of the nice. story. That would have been it nice. Not, it teaches you trade, and it also teaches you moral lessons. Uh, Webkins does? Yeah. You would like watch TV shows inside Webkins that would teach you like to be nice. Well, that's the most I, inspiring is, thing. This is the most heard. I've talked about Webkins in a long time. All right. <laughs> You'll have to go back and do some Webkins research. Okay. So, But you look at all of those things, and none of those things happened because a government mandated them. They just happened. They just are the way that governance is evolving across the world. I don't think the nation state is ever going to collapse as an idea in some big ceremony. I think it's going to go out with a whimper. When we turn not around, with a bang. Not with a bang. We turn around and realize, you know, if all of the countries in the world disappeared tomorrow, would McDonald's still sell hamburgers? I think they would. Yeah. I absolutely think they would. And then McDonald's would take over the world. Well, there's fear of that. McDonald's kind of thing. and Amazon, Google, Facebook. Well, Google and Facebook, all of those. I mean, they, they are these big sprawling monsters that nobody, even I think the centralized executives at the heart of them, they have a very hard time controlling all of the implications of I think, I think one thing that of. America is united in, though, is thinking that Mark Zuckerberg is a weird, weird dude. Yeah, there's some unity I, there. I'm pretty sure we're all pretty much, yeah, like joined in opinion about that. But do you need the government to tell you that? It wouldn't hurt, I suppose, if they made a law that we all had to think that. Because everyone already thinks that, so they'd be like, no, okay. Okay. We but, think he's a, ro- he's a robot lizard man. Yeah. Who doesn't I, blink. See, this is the thing. Whenever I start talking about this and people think I'm a wackadoodle for saying these kinds of things, I don't think that this is a transition that is made abruptly. It is a transition that is made over time. I mean, you look at how people communicate now. You know, the cell phone, the iPhone, is only about 10 years old. That's nuts. That's nuts. And you think how fundamentally smartphones have transformed I actually remember society. the very first time you got, an, you got an iPhone 1 and you picked me up from swim practice and you were like, look, you can watch a video on it. And we watched David After Dentist <laughs> on the drive home from swim. And I was, uh, it was amazing. It was. That video where the kid is all like, just had the teeth pulled and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. Is this real life? Is this real life? And it was incredible. And we could watch David after Dennis in the car. Right. 
And, and now, now we all just stare at our screens all day. And, and it has fundamentally and transformed And we're devolving society. into the fat people from Wally. That's exactly right. But I, I think you look at that and you look at the way all of these things are transforming human society. The implications for the nation state are profound. And I don't think we are thinking about them nearly as much as we ought to be. And there's one very compelling reason why I don't think the nation state is an idea is likely to vanish completely. Uh, that's a whole discussion I want to get into. But I look at this and say, you know, the nation state will endure for instance, newspapers. There are still newspapers. And newspapers, I'm not sure if they're ever going to completely disappear. They probably will eventually. Newspapers but, is the big reason? No, newspapers aren't the big reason. But it's newspapers are irrelevant at this point. Print newspapers. Yeah. News organizations. The New York Times is still relevant. Yeah. But the newsprint version of the New York Times is largely irrelevant. Sure. Saddest thing in the world this past week, incidentally, this is kind of a tangent, but Mad Magazine is going to stop publishing. I don't know what that is. You don't know what Mad Magazine is? I know Mad Max is. Is it like that? No, Mad Magazine. Is Mel Gibson in it? No. I don't know what that is. Oh, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Mad Magazine is a humor magazine. It's a parody magazine. Alfred E. Newman, the guy with the buck teeth who says, what me worry? What is happening? You I don't... Feel, what? The world has changed. See, this is proof. So You sound so old right now. I am very, very old. That is absolutely true. But there are people listening to this who are very sad to hear that Mad Magazine is going out of business. I'm going to show you issues of Mad Magazine that I have upstairs buried in our in all of my it's, comic it's, books. It's okay. It's okay. I'll take your word for it. No, But I, as society changes... The things that we've changed away from sort of linger long after their shelf life. And I am convinced that the nation state is one of those things. But the thing that is going to make it linger is going to make it linger for a very long time. And I will talk about that after the break. After the break. If you think about it pretty hard, or even not that hard, I bet you could come up with what that thing is. Um, One word. Begins with a G. G-U. Guns. 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 The military. Uh, What else starts with G-U? Nothing. Guru? Goobers? No, Goobers is G-O-O. Gubernatorial starts with G-U. That's exactly right. Yes. That's the one thing that's going to make the nation state linger is gubernatorial. That doesn't make any sense. Guns, the military, what happens to the entire military apparatus once you say you don't need a country anymore? And we say, okay, well, what do we do with all these guns? What do we do with all of these soldiers? What do we do with this entire apparatus, this entire industry? Put it in your garage like everybody else puts their garbage. No, no. Stick it in your attic. You're not going to stick it in your attic. Someone walks up into their attic like... 20 years later and there's like nuclear weapons and stuff mom what is this right don't touch it (laughs) leave it alone leave it in its box i i think it's it's no accident that in order to stir up patriotism that the images that trump wanted to use on the fourth of july 
were tanks on the National Mall and flyovers by Air Force it jets. Was, it was interesting of him to do that and then talk about how people should join the military when he was a draft dodger. Right. Well, I, that's like a point that everyone's made before. But it, and the hypocrisy is just... It's stunning. Wow. Yes, there's a lot. It's incredible. Newsflash, Donald Trump is a hypocrite. It's just, it's pretty, it's... It's almost like hard to believe sometimes. Yeah, it's pretty stunning. Someone should have like had a sign that was like, "How are your bone spurs doing?" <laughs> right. Well, they did float a huge balloon of a baby Trump. Uh, the protesters did right next to the mall. Oh, they did that in London too. Yeah. So there are all kinds of protests, but that the, the idea of the military. That I think is the most potent symbol of patriotism well, that still ever, exists. But everybody, you if 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 a, if like a candidate ever said, "I don't love our troops," they would be right. done for. Like right. everybody loves the troops, everybody supports the troops. Right, that's true. But even the kind of warfare that is part of the American legend, the idea that we saved the world in World War II and all of those kinds of ah, things—the good old days, the good old days—all of that relies on a 20th century at the latest understanding of how war works because the wars of the 21st century really haven't been against nation states no the war on terror well we we went against iraq but that sort of devolved into a guerrilla war where people i I don't some people probably do but when i think about like iraq i don't think like oh i hate the iraqis oh yeah you know you're like people are like i hate terrorists but you see like pictures of like iraqi civilians and stuff and you feel you feel pity for them you don't think like oh i hate iraq no and we've gone out of our way to try to say that our war is not with the civilians of these countries but the war on terror the war against islamic extremism is something that crosses borders it has nothing it kind of turned into i hate muslims though well i don't hate muslims you don't hate muslims no no, but it, but it kind of it kind of turned into people hating a a a religion right. instead of a country. Right. I mean that that's part of the challenge. But we look at this, and I think the idea of the military gives us a sense of order, and it gives us. You know, I used to love the old Batman TV series because everything was clearly labeled. Everything Batman did, it's like, quick, let's go to the bat shoe analyzer and there was a sign on the bat shoe analyzer that said bat shoe analyzer and all of the villains had their own themes that's, and the penguins that's fought with penguin people that's interesting of you to say because i feel like batman now and like the tv shows and stuff all the villains are, have such sympathetic backstories to them right all the all the villains like mr freeze is just trying to save his girlfriend or whatever you know and right they're all adapted for and, a less and black na- yeah, and white now reality. now none of them are black and white like they all like have really compelling reasons why they're bad and it's, they're not bad like black and white they're like i don't know Right. That was just a Batman observation made by me. Batman observations are always welcome. But that's, I think, exactly right. I think that analogy holds with how we view nations across the world. Because when I was growing and up... And Thanos, like, he, he had, like, justification, kind of, for what he did. Well, they, they messed up that okay. from the comic books. I don't want to get into that. Okay. That's a very long discussion. But when I was growing up, I actually entered an essay contest in first grade. And my mother told me, put in there, America never starts wars. And I put that in my essay, and they published that in the 
district newsletter. I thought they were going to publish it in the dumb kid newsletter. No, but it was considered somewhat scandalous because it was in the middle of the, it was near the end of the Vietnam War. Vietnam was the first. That was not a good one. Well, it was one of the first wars where we, we didn't define it in black and white. Americans weren't necessarily the good guys and the Vietnamese were the bad guys. Whereas every war prior to that, maybe not Korea as much, but World War Two and World War One. I, I mean, it was very clear. Everybody was clearly labeled. That, and patriotism it was, nice. yeah, was we very had simple. The sides, it was like allies and axis. Right. Like that's, that was really nice of them to like delineate. Right. And we live, I think, in a more complex world. And I think patriotism is an appeal to a simpler world where the United States of America can do no wrong and good for us and we're great and everybody else is... An appeal to simpler times. Well, and the idea of America... All of us have rose-colored glasses. Right, right. And it probably never was simpler even back in the time. But that's what I think... That's why I think uh, millennials and the rising generation aren't as excited... I don't know. Also, in school, we had to read accounts of people, like, coming home shell-shocked and stuff. Right. From, war just isn't, like, glamour, like, isn't, not that it ever was glamorous, but I don't know. Well, I think millennials are more comfortable with complexity than my generation, and certainly with the boomer generation. I think the boomers particularly, uh, and saw things very much in black and white. And and even the generation before that, I think each generation has come along with a greater appetite for complexity. Also, so, the internet helps a lot with that. Also, we have a lot of we. I see you see a lot of different viewpoints on the internet. Like you can see, like some like I don't know. Oh, you can see like an Iraqi person's vlog of their day. You know. That's absolutely right. And you can listen to this podcast. And if you are listening to this podcast on the radio, please uh, be sure <laughs> to, to that segue. Please be sure to subscribe at the KSL Podcast Center or on iTunes. Until next week, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And we'll see you next time. USA. On- USA.